Hello everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of QNAI podcast at Quiz AI Center. Today we have Metin Hocam, Metin Sezgin with us. Welcome Metin Hocam. Uh, thank you, Fatma. Thank you for accepting to do this with us. Uh, Metin Hocam leads the Intelligent User Interfaces IUI Lab at Koch University, and their main research focuses on human-computer interaction and intelligent user interfaces. Can you tell us a bit about the lab and your research? Sure. Um, first of all, thanks for inviting me over to this uh, podcast. I'm um, very excited to be uh, talking about my research as researchers do. What do I work on? Um, my passion is making computers, robots, and any other uh, electronic uh, device that is part of our life easier to interact with. So that, that's my passion. And I do that by understanding how humans communicate with each other. So understanding the natural modes of communication across people and then transferring these modes of communication to the devices uh, uh, around us and systems around us. Uh, so what that means is uh, in practice, understanding how people perceive uh, the world around them, how they perceive uh, speech, how they understand the language, how they understand, uh, uh, perceive emotions, how they express emotions, how they write and sketch and perceive uh, uh, handwritten inputs, uh, all those things uh, kind of put together. Um, and at the core of it, uh, my area of interest uh, rests on three pillars, um, one of which is traditional human computer interaction Uh, and computer science. The other one is uh, psychology, because if you're developing systems for people, we need to understand people's way of uh, perception and uh, expression first. That, that's why uh, the, the second pillar is psychology. And thirdly, machine learning, because um, you have to build systems that learn and that behave like humans Uh, and for that, we, we need machine learning. Mm -hmm. And you have been working on these topics for a while now, right? Like you have a lot of experience in all these three pillars. What do you think are the most striking, striking changes in your main research area since you started working on these topics? Right. Uh, I've been in the field for over 20 years now. It's, it's been uh, such a long time. And actually, even when I was an undergraduate, I, I was very much interested in, uh, in uh, what we used to call AI back then. What we used to call AI back then is quite different from what we call AI these days. Uh, but uh, the um, field itself emerged 50, 60, maybe now 70 years ago. It's a very old field. And it has been undergoing this constant transformation um, Uh, ever since it was born. As you know, we've had uh, the AI summers, AI winters, etc. But compared to um, when, the, the, compared to the time that I kind of started uh, doing research on uh, machine learning related uh, uh, projects, um, the, uh, the 
two things really changed. One is uh, back then there wasn't so much emphasis on um, uh, data, on, on reproducibility. Uh, people used to uh, come up with designs and algorithms and they would publish them uh, sometimes with little evaluation. Um, and then that was accepted in the community. So that has changed. Now we have um, uh, more rigorous rules on reproducibility. We have larger databases available. Uh, and with the larger databases, again, comes with uh, new algorithms that can leverage these uh, large data sets. Um, and also, um, I, I guess uh, over the last five years or so, there has been this huge shift towards uh, deep learning and connectionist methods, which used to be in fashion actually in the 80s uh, or maybe in even 90s. Actually, I guess 80s and earlier were the days of expert systems. And then came the days of uh, connectionist systems. And then came the, the days of support vector machines, uh, graphical models, and then uh, deep networks again. So I think this is uh, kind of a natural cycle in research that that's been um, going up and down. So who knows what's going to be in fashion in, in five years, in 10 years. Uh, but that has been the uh, major change. Lots of data, new methods, uh, and also new hardware as well. Now we have GPUs uh, all over the place. And another thing, of course, that has changed over the years is that now all this technology has started getting into our uh, daily lives through uh, the devices, everyday devices that we use. Our cell phones today are probably a lot more computational powerful compared to what we had uh, on our desktops 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So the change in the landscape of um, computation has been dramatic as well. That's true. The, like the biggest promise of deep learning, I guess, learning from data and making things better, making results better. Is it the case in your, in the problems that you study as well? That's, that's debatable. I think that's debatable in general too, uh, because uh, I'm still not sure how much of the improvements due to deep learning are genuinely due to deep learning as opposed to um, us having found a way of uh, training models with large data. Um, so um, uh, it's true that for very large data sets uh, in, in my domain, the recognition accuracy, accuracies have gone up. That's why we are now using uh, deep networks. Uh, but um, I'm still unsure whether that's uh, a, a, a genuine contribution of the deep learning methods themselves or, or just the fact that they're able to use uh, large data sets. Yeah. Do you think this is the main bottleneck? If we can train longer on a larger data sets, can we get better? Like is the hardware limitation the main bottleneck here? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think really we need algorithmically, we need a better understanding of what it means to learn. I think that's what we're missing uh, at, at the moment in, in, the, in the deep learning uh, community. I wouldn't call myself a deep learning expert. I'm not a deep learning expert, but I think this is certainly missing uh, in the field. Uh, understanding knowledge representation and uh, 
you know, getting a better understanding of why methods work or why, why then they don't work was uh, relatively more important, I think, 10 years ago or 15 years ago compared to today. Today, if you get a result uh, and it works, uh, that's end of story. People don't question uh, whether the improvements are due to uh, a genuine contribution uh, to, to the way they build a model or is it a, uh, as, as a side effect of having more data? Uh, you know, of course, people come up with different architectures for solving different problems, but um, I'm talking about more fundamental, um, more fundamental ways of modeling the learning process, like uh, things like including um, causality uh, or things like including like um, explainability, uh, disentanglement, uh, even generalization. I think uh, there's, there are obviously people working on these things, but in general, I think there is uh, more emphasis and more excitement around getting just better results or faster results, which, which I think is um, one thing that kind of needs to shift. Yeah. Before moving on to like specific topics that you work on, one last question. What do you think would be the biggest development in AI in the next 10 years? Like in terms of your research, maybe, what would be the biggest development that would help your research? Is it what kind of acceleration or like what kind of data would you imagine to make right. things? Uh, that, that's a very good question. So in my domain, I work with sketches and sketches are very interesting creatures. They're very much unlike uh, photographs of objects. Uh, in that they have high degree of ambiguity. So if I show you and uh, someone else a picture of a scene, a particular scene, you would probably see the same things in the scene. If you were to see different things in that scene, that would be a big news, right? That would be kind of like an optical illusion or something like that. Whereas in the domain of sketches, the interpretation, the perception process is um, very ambiguous. People may look at the same thing and see different things. That's because our perception is uh, heavily dependent on external factors and internal factors, like what we were thinking about, what else we were thinking about as we were looking at that scene, um, the, the relationships of the pieces of ink we see and how we hallucinate different meanings out of them. So all these things have precise interpretations in the domain of images and photographs, but they're very much ambiguous in the, in the domain of um, sketches. So I think uh, this is a main challenge uh, that, that stands uh, in the road of sketch-based interfaces and sketch understanding in general, um, which people had been sidestepping uh, by actually kind of treating sketch recognition as, as uh, symbol recognition or image recognition or object recognition, just uh, collecting large data sets of stick figures and houses and cars and classifying them and declaring victory, whereas it doesn't work that way. I think uh, we need to somehow connect human perception and, and human psychology uh, into the interpretation process. Uh, that, that, that's one area that I think if we were to make uh, progress over the next five, 10 years would change the landscape in uh, sketch recognition and maybe also in other um, fields of 
uh, AI as well. Take um, a, you know, a text, a piece of text, a paragraph. You and I can read the same paragraph, nevertheless think of different things, right? That, that might have a different effect on what we imagine. So again, connecting what we perceive out of a paragraph of text uh, to human psychology, uh, that, that would uh, make things tremendously different in that, in that landscape. And similar things can be said about computer vision as well. But I always, uh, since I'm not a computer vision uh, person per se, uh, uh, I come to think of the vision as we perceive it to be more precise than NLP or the case of sketch processing, as I mentioned. But I think there might be even uh, good uh, rooms for this psychology-based approaches or psychologically inspired approaches in the case of computer vision and uh, human-robot interaction as well. Yeah, this personalization in perception is very interesting, really. But I, I, I'm not aware of any progress, actually. This is a very new topic, right? Are there any like success stories from that perspective in AI? Uh, well, uh, there has been a lot of work in the domain of affective computing, which uh, connected itself to, psych to the psychology um, community a lot earlier. Uh, so if you were to go to the uh, International Conference on uh, Effective Interfaces, uh, you would see people from psychology departments as well as CS departments. So a lot of models of how, uh, for example, robots should be programmed to interact with people um, have been now uh, based on understanding of human psychology, okay? So this is not exactly what I was talking about in the case of uh, you know, perception of sketches, but uh, th there is a success story, I guess, in uh, the uh, effective computing um, domain that is in the making. Uh, but I think we should, we should value uh, the contributions that, that psychology and cognitive sciences can bring uh, uh, to our fields um, and embrace, embrace that. And I personally find this to be uh, an important aspect uh, uh, for my personal domain. Uh, that's why I had been pushing for a uh, uh, sponsored project on this for a long time. And finally, I got a, I got a grant uh, on this uh, kind of uh, multidisciplinary project that tries to explore um, sketch interpretation from, from the multiple views. And um, we have some idea of how we would be connecting uh, human perception and human appraisals to uh, machine interpretation, but we'll see how it goes. Great, congratulations again. Thank you. Um, so you're also working on cartoons, right? We had Gurkan the other, I think the last month, and he mentioned their, your project with you and Deniz Hoca. Uh, in this project, you're trying to combine the power of language and visual understanding for cartoons. This is how I understand from outside, but can you tell us about more, more about this project? Gurkan was very excited, but he just barely mentioned the title. Right. Um... So uh, Denis Juret uh, is very interested in uh, vision and language, uh, and I'm very interested in vision and sketching. So this project uh, kind of came to being as we were uh, talking with him and also another collaborator of mine from 
Texas A&M University, Ergun Akleman, who, who happens to be a cartoonist uh, on, on the use of cartoons and, and the stories they depict. So um, um, cartoons, the, the comics series, uh, they are unique in the sense that they um, describe entire stories, pages of stories uh, in sketches and in very little text. So there's a lot encoded in the sketches as well as in the text. Dennis being an NLP person and myself being a sketch uh, person, uh, uh, I decided that this would be a tremendous um, uh, area uh, of potential impact for us because there is a lot of data. If you were to um, uh, search for uh, comic comic books, you would be shocked to see terabytes and terabytes of uh, comic magazines uploaded on the internet. Now, there is a lot of information out there. So this seemed like a very good domain where we could uh, develop new algorithms for uh, interpreting sketches and develop new algorithms for understanding the text, doing the natural language processing on it, and getting a hold of the narrative, uh, which is one of the big challenges challenges in natural language processing. Uh, if you have text, how do you get a get a hold of the narrative out of text? So imagine a story of uh, Lucky Luke, right, Red Kid in <laughs> Turkish, uh, in an entire uh, in, a, in a small book. You have an entire story with characters with things happening between the characters, uh, lots and lots of information, but this is all explained in uh, just sketches and very little text. So I think it's an impressive uh, medium of expression, uh, drawing and, and text, and we're very much intrigued by it, and we we're interested in uh, finding out more about uh, how the two work together and how the two can be used together as well. So that maybe in the future, we would be uh, describing research papers using cartoons because cartoons are so expressive, who knows? Yeah, that would be interesting actually. Do you consider the style of the artist when you're studying cartoons? Because different artists have different styles, right? Right, um, so that, Again, as I said, like sketching is very expressive, right? So as people draw, they have very different ways of expressing characters and emotions. Uh, they, uh, this colleague I mentioned, Ergun Oja uh, from Texas A&M, he's, he's a cartoonist, so he can tell even the same cartoon character, take Superman, for example, can be drawn by multiple artists. You know, one artist draws the character for 10 years, Maybe he quits or he passes away. Someone else takes over from the eyes of the observer, you know, like, like people like us. They're just a continuation of the same series, whereas he can tell that there are uh, uh, not so subtle changes in the, in the style. So artists do have different styles. So, so the style, even within the same comic series, can change uh, and across the different genres, it, it certainly does change. So uh, manga looks different from, say, the, the classical American uh, comics, and that looks a lot different from what you would see in Gurgur. So uh, there is a lot of variation, uh, change in, 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 in the variation. 
we haven't yet uh, attempted the style variation issue yet, uh, but we, we, we know that it, it is there and we're uh, structuring our approach to the problem so that we um, uh, take a chewable bite size and uh, work with uh, drawing styles that are going to be manageable for us because uh, certain uh, drawing styles, I think they, they would be very well beyond the uh, capability of the existing uh, recognition systems. You know, recognizing those would, would be very hard. So we're kind of uh, picking domains that are not going to be too hard to uh, actually uh, uh, sink our teeth into. Yeah, yeah, that would be really interesting. If you could transfer style, for example, from one cartoon to the other. Right. Uh, so we're, we're trying to do something similar to that as we're trying to learn, uh, train object recognizers in cartoons. So I, I mentioned Lucky Luke. Uh, you know, if you want to understand a Lucky Luke scene, you would probably need to understand that they're uh, cowboys wearing cowboy hats, uh, they're horses, uh, there are guns and rifles, and there are cacti around. So all these things, you need recognizers to recognize them, right? Uh, but if you have few data, if you have small uh, data sets, and we, we do have small data sets because we're not Google, we haven't yet annotated large, we don't have the resources to annotate large sets of comic strips, then the natural question that comes to mind is how do you learn, um, how do you learn recognizers from few examples of, of your domain of interest. And there we have been trying to find ways of uh, transferring the style of uh, photographs and uh, scenes, uh, photographed scenes to cartoonish uh, uh, styles and then maybe using annotated real world images, but then style transferred to be closer to our domain uh, as part of our training data. So we're, we're kind of looking into that and interesting results are coming out. Looking forward to them. Really, I would like to see some. <laughs> um, okay, moving on from sketches to education. You also do very influential, very interesting research on education with Alpai, right? I, Alpai had a presentation at say I, I remember some of it. So for everyone, maybe you're focusing on the way students learn, right? That's like the main focus of that research. Can you tell us about it? Like, what is your motivation there? What do you want to achieve? Okay, so my involvement in education research um, or research in teaching and learning uh, really dates back all the way to my master's days. Um, so back then I was working on systems that could recognize electronic circuit diagrams or diagrams of mechanical systems. And one of the uh, motivating use case scenarios that we had in mind was a, a magic electronic paper that could recognize your circuit drawings and maybe show you an animation of, of your circuit drawing so that you understand how parallel uh, circuits or se uh, series uh, circuits or uh, you know, resistors in series work. Uh, or maybe like a physics diagram, we would recognize the physics diagram and help you understand um, Y F equals MA and what happens if you have an inclined plane. So that was the motivating example from back then. And then um, when the earlier days of my time at Koch, um, I 
uh, again pitched this idea to Turk Telecom, who was back in the day uh, sponsoring research projects. And they used to own, maybe they still do, uh, uh, they used to own Vitamin, uh, one of the uh, largest um, educational um, electronic resources in, in Turkey in terms of e-learning material. So um, since they did work in education, I said, oh, look, look we have this technology. We could uh, try to uh, turn this into a product. Turk Telecom can integrate this to Vitamin and students all over Turkey could draw their circuit diagrams and see, see their simulations. So that's where my interest kind of got, uh, got um, uh, rejuvenated when I, when I moved to Koch. We've worked on this idea for two years with Turk Telecom, but unfortunately, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, things in the industry, they, they don't quite work the way they do in academia. So I couldn't, uh, in, eventually it, the, the thing didn't um, find the backers in, within the company to turn it into a product, but we, we kind of did our research. And then a couple of years after that, uh, the, as you know, the Turkish uh, ministry came up with this Fatih project, which had the goal of putting a smart uh, board to every classroom and handing a smart uh, tablet to, to uh, every student. Um, and they, they, Tuvita came up with this uh, prioritized areas calls, uh, uh, 1003 call, um, especially targeting educational interfaces. And then I uh, came up with this idea of um, writing, uh, uh, of building a system for, um, uh, for um, integrating open-ended questions to the uh, testing and evaluation assessment system of Turkey. As you know, in Turkey, everything goes through standardized tests. We said ABC, you know, that we mark ABCs and that's how we learn uh, and mm -hmm. how we get assessed. So my goal back then was if I could build some of this sketch recognition and even the handwriting recognition technology into these tablets that students were gonna have, I could then uh, have teachers ask open-ended questions which could be answered by free text and sketches and have them automatically graded. So that was kind of my second big project on education, which eventually didn't uh, turn out to be as I dreamed, uh, as things seldom do, uh, because um, uh, the Fatih project didn't accomplish all the goals that it it's, uh, kind of wanted to accomplish. Like we had huge difficulties when we took our, we built the technology, but we had a lot of difficulty taking them to the classroom because uh, uh, schools didn't have internet, students didn't have tablets, uh, all the tablets that, that were kind of um, given to the uh, students, uh, 20, 30% of them were broken. Some of them were sold by the parents of the kids to, uh, to others. I don't know, like, like a lot of crazy stuff happened. And then you know, just as I kind of witnessed in my project with Turk Telecom that, you know, some things, even when you do the research and uh, come up with the proof of concept, it's hard to have that um, kind of 
taken over by an industrial partner. Now I had this difficulty with the uh, uh, public uh, sector uh, because the technology wasn't there. Not everyone had tablets, despite the fact that uh, this was kind of advertised uh, well before. And then that kind of brought us to this last project, which I'm currently um, uh, kind of uh, 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 undertaking in my lab. Uh, here, the goal is really to uh, expect less and less in terms of technology from students. So rather than assuming that he, uh, every student is going to have a tablet, we uh, bring our assumptions down to having one tablet per class and having people design their own tangible programming blocks. Uh, and the goal here is to have people design their tangible programming blocks and learn programming concepts uh, using uh, a collaborative environment uh, and, and only have a minimal requirement of hardware to, to have everything going. So I'm pretty much pretty excited about this because um, I guess I kind of learned from the previous mistakes that I did in uh, turning these projects into uh, reality. So, so I think we have better chances this time. Based on these experiences, are you worried about the education, like conditions in education during pandemic? This is well, this was a natural question. I'm sorry, I have to ask it. <laughs> uh, right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we have the amount of interaction that we used to have between students. We, we no longer have that. We have the WhatsApp chat lists uh, and other means of communication. But I think there is a real value to being in the same physical environment with, with your uh, professors, with your friends. Uh, it motivates people uh, to, to work better, I think. So we are certainly missing uh, the days that we were all together. Even my group meetings, I'm feeling like, um, you know, I'm getting used to the Zoom meetings, but I certainly miss face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, just a couple of days or maybe a couple of weeks ago, uh, we went to the AI center at the Ishpankasa Towers uh, with um, two of my students and the three of us being there, it just felt great, even though it was only three of us being in the same physical space and talking about our research, uh, exchanging ideas, that felt great. Now that said, I should say uh, that my teaching actually got better uh, as I lectured online. The course that I, one of the courses I teach is Comp 301, which is the uh, Fundamentals of Programming Languages, which is probably the most hated class at Coach after Comp 200, which you used to teach, which I used to teach as well, uh, because this is a very theoretical course and people always complain that, you know, uh, are we gonna use this in real, in real life, etc. cetera. Uh, but I, um, this time I kind of designed my setup, my physical setup with a tablet, with a camera placement, with a monitor placement where I could see people uh, with a nice microphone and headsets uh, set up. And I um, lectured over my tablet, being able to take notes on my tablet. And I felt really great. Uh, I felt very connected with the class. So this, this was an amazing experience. It was a class of 112 people and I had 
way more attendance in my live lectures, even though they were being recorded, than I would have had in my live lectures, and physical lectures at the school. And I think just because I didn't have the background noise in the classroom that, that I guess was really throwing me off, um, I was very motivated. I, I could uh, just lecture uh, without, um, you know, getting uh, stuck. So it, it felt great, actually. <laughs> That's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. Um, so talking about these, your experiences with industry, like what is an ideal relationship between research institutes and industry? What's your, like, how do you imagine it to be? Okay, the ideal uh connection is I think what I used what we used to have uh, at MIT with this three or maybe it was five year long project called Project Oxygen, which actually laid the foundations of many of the technologies that we see, see around today. Uh, there, I think six industrial companies came together and they um, uh, granted a huge amount of money to uh, a very large a uh, group of PIs uh, at the Computer Science and AI Laboratory uh, at MIT. And the um, requirements or, or the expectations there, there were not uh, uh, stiff requirements or uh, required hard deliverables. So it was just money for uh, the researchers to go ahead with their researchers and uh, uh, the companies would benefit from whatever IP would come out by being the first ones to hear about it. So that was their only expectation. And this was a great setup for us because we had the flexibility and the freedom of doing whatever research we pleased to do. Uh, and I think eventually those companies uh, benefited from our research as well because they, they were, again, the first ones to hear about the news uh, that, that we're going to come out of. Uh, uh, the, the, the lab. And something very close to that, we fortunately had with Turk Telecom as in my earlier days at Koch. Um, uh, Mr. Enis Arkel was the research director, uh, R&D director for uh, Turk Telecom uh, back then. And he had this great vision, which very much paralleled uh, what, we, what I had seen at MIT. And uh, Although they defined uh, vague areas of interest, they left uh, the uh, scopes of the research to be done entirely to the faculty. They had very short proposals uh, collected from the faculty, and they gave us good funding to carry out the research, no strings attached, um, and uh, many patents uh, came out of those sponsored projects, and, and I think that that was a great thing. Unfortunately, it didn't continue. And since then, I haven't seen uh, any uh, company in Turkish, any industrial company in, in, in Turkey uh, kind of doing the same thing um, uh, up until, I guess, uh, we had this generous funding from Ishbankas. But that's different. That's for, the, for founding a new AI center as opposed to carrying out uh, research uh, projects. So the DREAM research, sponsored research project is the one where uh, you get lots of money and you, you are given the freedom uh, and you do valuable stuff for the company. So at the end of the day, uh, the industrial partner gets value out of uh, their involvement with you. And I should add that uh, huge 
lumps of money is being uh, wasted in, in these industrial companies on uh, on stuff you cannot imagine. So it's uh, what we think as big money is is really small money when it comes to them. So uh, they they can certainly afford this. Uh, I, I hope more companies did uh, what uh, Telecom did ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talking about Quiz AI, um, I want to ask you about your role at Quiz AI a little bit. You are in charge of establishing relationships with other institutes together with Dida Moja and some, some other people, I think, this year, and probably with researchers from various disciplines. You're already working with psychologists, for example, right? You, you have experience in that area. Why do you like, can you talk about the import, importance of this for the center or for researchers in general to collaborate with other institutes or researchers from different domains? How would it help to our uh, institute, Quiz AI? Okay, uh, so I guess the question has two parts. One is, uh, you know, uh, getting to know other institutes that are similar in nature and also uh, getting to know groups of people who are not necessarily computer scientists, but maybe medical doctors or psychologists or nurses even. Uh, at least I'd like to interpret your question this way. So sure, sure. Uh, t- the answer to the first part is, um, uh, as you know, uh, EU funding, for EU funding, uh, you need uh, the typical uh, Horizon Europe or H2020 kind of uh, funding. You need partners. And and we need to be known to institutions across Europe. So it's very important that they know us, not that we know them, that they know us, because we already know these institutions. Uh, we have outstanding faculty here at Coach. Uh, and we just need to be heard and then we, we need to be uh, known so that when the time comes to looking for partners uh, for particular projects, they come to us and ask us to be in their uh, grant proposals. Now, uh, so far we had been kind of succeeding in this through personal connections. You know, I know this person who writes a proposal, invites me and in that kind of kind of stuff, but I think... Um, to be successful as uh, the AI center, uh, we need um, center-wide recognition uh, and uh, acquaintance uh, across uh, Europe. So that, that's why I think that's important. And um, as for the interdisciplinary uh, connections, uh, that's, again, uh, very important uh, working with psychologists. Uh, I've learned many things that I wouldn't have otherwise uh, known. Uh, Well, we we don't really come to think of psychologists as um, analytical uh, people, but they're they're very, you know, methods. uh, You know, if you go uh, look at the curriculum for psychology, they take more more statistics than we do. Uh, So we have a lot in common and uh, since they have a different way of uh, viewing things than 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 we do we we have a lot to learn from them Uh, again uh, medical doctors you are also uh, collaborating with medical doctors Um, a lot of problems that they have uh, we don't know about them so even having a chat over coffee or tea you get to learn their problems and then you say oh look i can solve this problem Uh, school of nursing i had a a series of meeting, meetings with 
uh, colleagues from the School of Nursing uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I probably came up with at least five different product ideas that could uh, be commercialized. Well, uh, assuming uh, you know what what I have in my mind could be realized, but they have very nice problems that we could solve and create a lot of impact. So it's uh, irrespective of their fields, uh, I think we need to talk to people. As computer scientists, we're a bit on the introvert side, uh, but we need to uh, uh, we need to break our boundaries. Uh, as you said, one of my students is a psychologist from Metu. She, she got her BS from Metu. And another student of mine is a um, the double major of um, physics and philosophy from Koch University. So <laughs> amazing background. You wouldn't necessarily expect uh, that sort of a background to be uh, doing CS, but uh, Alara, who is one of my students, she's uh, doing CS research and she's doing great. Nice, nice. Um, okay, we also have some questions from students. Birkan is here with us today to ask a couple of questions from student perspective. Birkan, do you want to take over? Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Jam. Yeah, uh, actually, I wonder about the word on your door, Metnu Jam, uh, from Richard Feynman, uh, saying, if you cannot explain something uh, in simple terms, uh, then you cannot understand it. So uh, I just wonder, is that the way you teach and is that the way how you learn something? Right. Uh, that's a nice quote. If you cannot explain something in simple terms, then you probably don't understand it. I had that. Uh, I, I taped it on my door in my old office. And when I moved over, that was one of the things I moved over to my new office because I really believe in the uh, in the the importance of being able to explain things clearly um, was something that I only grasped when I was doing my master's. As I was talking to my uh, PhD advisor, uh, Randall Davis, I would keep explaining things and I would just keep talking and talking and talking. And uh, I wasn't really paying attention to the words that I was saying. I wasn't really being careful or selective about the words I was using. I was just um, assuming that I was expressing myself, which was not happening. So through my interaction with him over maybe the course of uh, two or three semesters, I uh, learned the importance of being able to explain things in a crisp, uh, understandable, concise manner. And um, ever since then, uh, I try to kind of uh, be clear uh, in the way I express things as well. And I also encourage my students uh, follow the same uh, uh, routine as they speak, as they present, as they write. Uh, and also, kind of, uh, th this has um, uh, a parallel in the teaching world as well. Uh, so I think um, one of the clearest explainers that I've ever met in my life was um, my uh, computational theory professor uh, from MIT, uh, Michael Sipser. Uh, professor Sipser was teaching this course on computational complexity and you know, theory. This, this was a theory course, uh, a very hard course. He was teaching his own book cover to cover plus additional material. Nevertheless, the way he would 
introduce concepts in the lecture on the blackboard using a single white chalk was impressive. He would explain all these complex ideas to us, starting from, from finite state machines to you know uh, time space complexity, all those things. He would he he used to have this unique talent to express things concisely uh, and in a way that comes across that that came across. Uh, so everyone would leave his lecture having entirely understood the lecture material. He wouldn't leave anyone behind. But maybe, you know, if you let a day go by, you would forget parts of it. And then all of a sudden things would stop making sense. But as you were listening to him, things used to make perfect sense. So I think, um, uh, you know, being a good uh, communicator starts by first uh, knowing what you're really going to communicate and then communicate, communicating it in a nice, concise way. Uh, sometimes, by the way, I use this quote to, uh, against uh, some students who say, oh, I just have this idea and I know what I'm talking about, I just couldn't express it. So what I say is, if you, if you failed in explaining this thing in simple terms, then you probably didn't understand it. So this, this is my way of encouraging people to be more careful about uh, how they um, um, formulate their words and sentences and their uh, flow of thoughts as, as they expl ex express themselves, as they explain, for example, their research. Um, okay, Hojam, uh, like I just wanted to, actually I just noticed, noticed uh, one of uh, like uh, this quote's reflections on your students. Uh, as one of your students, I noticed that when we like complete our presentations, we just uh, uh, present them like we are presenting it to a, ch a child in five years old. So uh, I guess uh, it's a good practice that we got from you. So right. I it's just wanted good, to thank you for good this. Good practice and uh, you never get enough of this. Uh, so uh, writing <laughs> is one of those things that, that that's important for us. Speaking, yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, other than that, uh, like uh, as talking about the students, so you have been uh, like uh, in Harvard, MIT, and Cambridge, like some kind of different universities all around the world. Uh, I just wanted to, to ask that: uh, Do you see any difference between the students uh, you see abroad and you see here in Turkey? So, uh, can you just mention about the, the differences that you encountered? Okay, uh, right. So I've seen students in many countries, many institutions. Um, well, compared to the student body at MIT, for example, um, you know, students are very smart, very bright at MIT, but not all of them are very bright. Uh, and we have very bright students here in Turkey as well, uh, at Koç as well. Some of our students uh, go to top institutions. So I, I, uh, I don't think there is much of a uh, difference if you take the best students in terms of uh, intellectual ability and hardworking, uh, you know, abilities to do too hard to work hard. Um, nevertheless, when I come to think of students <clears throat> at MIT, I always uh, find them being uh, more than uh, just a smart student or a hardworking student. Uh, almost all of them have. Um, additional hobbies, they, they're either interested in music or dance or some sort of writing poetry or juggling. I mean, uh, at MIT, there was this MIT Juggling Society 
uh, I don't know if that was the precise uh, title of the club, but they, they would go around uh, and, and juggle balls and stuff. You know, you know people were interested in, in these kinds of things. So uh, people um, in these places usually uh, are more, more well-rounded. Uh, they have uh, more uh, hobbies and they, there's more to them than just the academics, uh, which uh, I should say in, at Koch, we also have a very good balance. But in Turkey in general, we miss this because our students are entirely um, uh, optimized internally to uh, be successful in this university entrance exam. And then uh, from that point on, they try to optimize their GPA and stuff. So they have less of an appreciation of being a well-rounded student and you know, uh, being a person who enjoys music or dance or uh, something else as well. So I would say at Koç, we're uh, kind of uh, on the very lucky end of the spectrum in terms of Turkey, uh, uh, but uh, uh, that's one big difference that comes to my mind as I, as I compare student bodies. Um, related to that, maybe we can end with a, with a, with a question with a more with a question on a more personal side I found out that you play sus currently and there are it's not it's common right like there are a lot of researchers who play an instrument like Einstein with violin does it affect your research does it affect how you think after the first year of my master's I uh, I guess I needed um, a way of expressing myself just beyond writing code uh, and I was very much connected with Turkish culture so I uh, as, as my graduation, my master's graduation present, I asked from my parents uh, for a balama, which I took to uh, the States with me and I kind of started learning it myself, playing it myself. And I should say it was a way of kind of grounding myself, emptying all the negative energy that I, they had, that I had. So that was a um, uh, very, um, important part of my daily uh, routine that I would, um, you know, do research, work hard, and then come home, either play on, uh, alone or play to my friends, uh, which they would uh, kindly pretend to be enjoying. Uh, but it was a, it was a very uh, important part of my daily routine that kept me from going insane. <laughs> so I should say. Nice. Nice. Thank you very much, Metin Ojan, for this enjoyable chat. It was very nice for us to hear about your research and your opinions about different things. And well, thanks, Birkan. Yeah. Uh, I would like to thank you both for uh, taking the time to uh, prepare thoughtful questions and also uh, for this uh, opportunity to, to chat. It was a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks everyone for listening. It was a pleasure to have Metin Ojan Birkan with us today. See you on the next episode of Q&AI podcast. Stay tuned.